Welcome in, everybody, to the Bare Knuckle Recovery Podcast. As always, I'm Tommy Streeter, along with Nate Mollering. What episode is this? 15. Episode 15. Because the last one was 14, so now we're at 15. Um, So, as you guys can see, we have two guests with us today. We've got Sam Helser and Andrew Norris. They are two of the members of the Bare Knuckle Recovery team. So, anytime somebody sends in messages to our Facebook page or if they send us an email or reach out to us in one way or another, Sam and Andrew are two of the people who may be responding. As Nate said before we got started, they also might show up at your house. Yep. If you need to get into treatment but you're hesitant about it. Yep. They're happy to come talk to you about it. Yep. So we just wanted to bring them on today to introduce them to everybody. We've done a couple podcasts like this in the past where we've had, you know, Jamie and Alicia, Zach, a few of the others on, and Mm -hmm. Sam and Andrew are two of our newer members. I think they've both been here for a few months now. So it was time to have them on. They withstood the first few months, so they earned the right to sit on the couch. There you go. So here they are. So we just wanted them to come in and tell everybody a little bit about themselves, um, share some of their story, uh, where they came from, and how they got to where they are today. So Sam, since you started first, we will go ahead and start with you. So just tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, so with me, I manage the South Allen County, Huntington, um, Wabash area. Um, it's a pretty tough area, but, um, you know, I got into this role because, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll back up a little bit. You know, I was, I was born in Indianapolis, um, adopted to a family in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, you know, and, and, there was a part of me that was always missing, right? Um, no matter what I tried to water that plant with, so to speak, um, you know, I, I've tried women, I've tried drugs, I've tried alcohol, um, nothing really ever fixed it. Um, you know, and, and, and when you're trapped in that cycle, it leads you to treatment center after treatment center. It leads you to jail after jail. It leads you to overdose after overdose, halfway house after halfway house. Um, you know, and, and eventually, no matter who told me what, I had to figure out that, you know, I was tired of that cycle. You know, my mom could be tired of that cycle. The court system could be tired of that cycle. Uh, but but really, you know, I had to be tired of it as well. And, and, and I had to get to a point where I was fed up. You know, luckily, I survived that battle. Um, you know, I, even after overdosing multiple times, you know, I was lucky to be one of the ones that made it out. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I suck. I was seeking treatment, um, you know, whatever that looked like, mm-hmm. you know, got to a point where I ended up at, you know, Fort Wayne recovery, um, you know, went through that process. And, and I think at that point I still wasn't ready to admit my powerlessness. Um, you know, I was still doing it for everybody else. Yeah. Um, still doing it for the court system, still doing it for my parents. Um, eventually got to the place where, you know, I relapsed after that program. I think it was actually, you know, the first day I was out of that program. Um, you know, went to have a drink, ended up getting an OWI. Um, you know, that was my fourth OWI at the time. Um, and you know, I, I was done. I was mm-hmm. beaten. I was battered. Um, I, I got sent to Huntington County jail on a probation violation. Um, you know, that, that judge was done with me. She had given me three opportunities. Um, so she sat me down the remainder of my sentence, which was nine months. Um, and you know, I just, I just did that time and reflected on who I wanted to be. Um, you know, luckily during that time, um, you know, my mom would always answer the phone call. I always talked to my mom and my dad. Um, and my mom was also willing to send me books in. So, you know, she sent me in the big book. She sent me in the NA book. Um, you know, and I just started reading those because 
you know, what else did I have to do? I could sit and I could watch, um, you know, Duck Dynasty or whatever the guys right. in the block were watching at that time. Uh, you know, but but I had done that before. I had been there before and it didn't get me anywhere except for back yep. incarcerated. Um, so, you know, I read and I read and I read and eventually I got to the point where, um, you know, I would pull a guy or two in with me and we would just talk about, hey, what does your journey look like? How did you end up here? Um, you know, and, and eventually that, you know, led to four or five guys out at the table talking and, and eventually, you know, we would we would end in the block talking as a block. Hey, how did everybody's day go today? You know, what do we have to look forward to when we get out of here? Um, you know, and, and I felt purpose in that. And I felt like there was a driving factor there. You know, I could I could do this. I could talk to people. I could help people get through it. Um, you know, I was OK with going down the road for 10 and a half years because I still didn't know what would go on with that Grant County case. Um, you know, I was I had a peace that I had never felt before. Um, so about that time, you know, when I was reflecting and, and things were starting to look up, n not on the outside necessarily, um, but on the inside, um, you know, I, I was talking to my attorney and he said, hey, you got approved for, for Grant County Drug Court. And I said, you know what? All right, cool. Um, you know, a, a lot of people have failed that program, but let's see what it has to offer. You know, I'm willing to try anything at this point. Um, so, you know, I got out of Huntington County Jail um, and I immediately had to report to the Gray's house um, where actually this was the first guy that I met there. Um, you know, and, and he was he's part of my story He's a huge part of my story, um, got to the Gray's house, you know, and, and tried to start working an actual program, tried to start going to meetings, not just for the women, um, you know, not just because I was out of cigarettes and knew I could bum a cigarette from somebody at the meeting. Uh, but I actually wanted to pour something in and get something out of those. meetings. So it wasn't just about what you could get. You wanted to help other people. Right. Right. You know, and that's that's kind of where my recovery shifted was it's not just about me anymore. You know, I've been so caught up in what's Sam going to get out of this that, you know, I lost contact of who I actually was. Um, so then, you know, I, I started focusing on how can I help the next person? Um, and, you know, that's a huge part of the 12 steps is just helping the next person doing the next right thing. Um, so, you know, that's what I decided to do. And no matter where that took me, I was okay, as long as I just kept doing that next right thing. Um, so, you know, you know, as I said, I met Andrew, um, you know, and I met a couple other good guys um, and, and, and I built myself a small little community. Um, you know, Sam's decisions never got Sam to a good spot. Sam's mm -hmm. decisions always got Sam to a pretty bad spot. Um, so I decided to surround myself with a network of people that would hold me accountable. Um, you know, that looked like my uh, probation officer through drug court. His name was Reggie. Great guy. Um, that looked like Andrew and a couple of other guys at the house um, and just some other people in the community that I could go to talk to. And before I knew something was wrong with me or something was off, they knew and they would call me out on that. Um, you know, so I just I kept that cycle going um, until I grew graduated. And it's important for me to keep that cycle going after I graduate, uh, after I graduate, you know, that that time while I was at the Grace House and in Huntington County Jail, those built some very strong principles on which I can uh, put into my recovery today. That was the foundation for success. Um, and that's what I keep moving forward, just going back to the basics someday, just not picking up making that phone call. Um, that's all I can do sometimes. And that's what I do, because that's what got me through. So that's what's going to get me through. So you feel like you were finally at a spot where you were willing to let some people do the thinking for you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, my thinking gets me in the worst spots. So mm -hmm. let's try somebody else. And how hard was it for you to humble yourself to let other grown men tell you what you should and shouldn't do next? Was that difficult for you? Um, 
No, because I looked at it as, you know, if I'm spending my life in treatment or in jail, there, there's going to be grown men telling me what I can and can't do anyway. Right. So I might as well have the benefits and the positives of living a free life and, and having some free choice in what I want to do um, and, and, and being able to express myself and, and being in a safe environment while so doing it. I always like to say there's no freedom without responsibility. Absolutely. And yeah. so what your recovery, what the cool thing about it is, you got to pick the people you were going to listen to instead of the court telling you you're going to listen to these people because you refuse to listen to anybody else. Absolutely. And I, I love to highlight that in your story because I think it's so crucial for so many people to understand is that, you know, you can pick the group around you who's going to dictate what you do or one will be given to you. Essentially, and I know people aren't your higher power, but it is a power greater than yourself, right? To yeah. let a group of people come around you and influence you. <laughs> like you pick a higher power or one will be chosen for you. I always yeah. like to highlight that for people if they're struggling. Absolutely. You know, and that goes hand in hand with, with the higher power of my understanding. Yeah. What I don't do for myself, my higher power is going to do for me. Awesome. Um, you know, and, and at the time that was people, mm -hmm. um, you know, when I first got into the rooms, there's God, God, God in the steps. And I was like, you know, I can't relate to that. I, yeah. It pushed me away. Um, you know, and, and I went to a meeting and someone said, one of the old timers in there said, you know, it's all about your good orderly direction. Mm. The first time I heard that it was, <laughs> yeah, it blew it my like, mind. Yeah, it really did. Yeah. I always struggled with that too. Um, you know, for a long time, I honestly didn't even know if I believed in God or not. But then my thought was, even if God is real, like, I don't want anything to do with that just because of how terrible my life was, even though my life was terrible because of my own decisions that I had made. You know, yeah. as we know now, God doesn't mess with free will. But the first time I heard that, it really just kind of opened my mind up to the possibility of that, even of like even of having a higher power. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and that pushed me into, you know, where I'm at spiritually now. Um, and I, I can I couldn't be. I'm happy. Yes, I'll have some work to do, um, but, you know, I'm comfortable with where I'm at. And for the first time in my life, um, you know, I can say that I'm, I'm in a good place. And, you know, there's days where I'm not OK, but mm -hmm. today I'm OK with not being OK. So. Right. I'm just kind of surprised that Duck Dynasty didn't keep you sober. Well, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> Did you even give it a shot? Uh, not that time. Not that time. Other times, yes, but not that time. Size a pretty good guy, man. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, he is. He is. The beards, man. So, Andrew, tell us a little about yourself and your story. And Yeah, I got sober watching Duck Dynasty. All right. <laughs> it was around episode nine. You can bet that, Jack. Um, no, I grew up in Indianapolis uh, on the west side in a town called Speedway. Um, had a pretty... I hear there's a racetrack there. I heard there was. I don't remember one. Uh, interestingly enough, I lived there... Uh, I, I went to all school there, never went to a race. Mm. So growing, growing up there, it's more like a Mardi Gras vibe. Right. And it wasn't about, I went to a qualification though, but it was partying. So that was yeah. very much like, uh, my childhood was, uh, in teen years was based around partying and having a good time, uh, played sports, basketball, baseball, football. Um, but as I got older, that started to be, um, less important and I didn't have a ton of direction, uh, Following school and having no direction, uh, my dad always told me you were never joining the military. He was an army guy. Um, when I was 18, no job, no direction, he said, you're joining the army. <laughs> so uh, joined the army and uh, did a deployment, was stationed in Schofield Barracks, Hawaii. Uh, so at this stage, you know, the army gave me some structure in my life. Um, I did really good um, up until my deployment and coming back. So um, during my deployment, it's a 
it's a stressful situation to be in. And I had literally no healthy coping mechanisms for dealing with life in general, let alone um, the things you deal with in a war zone. So uh, they prescribed me medication, Klonopin, to um, keep me stable. And um, it worked while I was there. But when I um, got back from deployment, we go through medical discharge and they looked at the dose that I was on and they said, you can absolutely not have this dose. Um, not understanding medications or withdrawals or any of those things. I said, I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm back from deployment. I'm good to go. Um, and I was good for about a week. Everything was exciting. Everything's new. Um, and then that second week came around and life got real, real quick. And I could tell something was off in me. Something uh, felt different. I wasn't comfortable. I was anxious, uh, but I wasn't able to like identify these things. I just knew I'm not okay. Uh, I did recreational uh, drugs in high school, nothing crazy. Uh, so most uh, soldiers at that time will go into like alcohol. That's the typical. I was never much of a big drinker, but I knew opiates were something like I enjoyed the feeling of. So uh, I found some Vicodin, took a pill and felt normal, felt good. Mm -hmm. I didn't have that anxiety. I didn't have that stress. I felt comfortable in my skin again. And I was like, ah, this is it. And so after about a month of taking Vicodin every day, um, I couldn't find Vicodin. And I had tried Oxycontin years before in high school and it was so strong. I, it made me nod out and I was like, that's horrible. I don't, I, I can't be awake. I don't want that. Um, but it was the only thing in the opiate realm I could get my hands on. So I was like, okay, I can take a fraction of this and get the similar result. So it started off with just, you know, a quarter of a pill and uh, just continued to progress and progress. And I remember one day uh, a girl knocking on my door about eight o'clock in the morning. And so I'm upset. It's a weekend. Someone's waking me up. And so I answer the door and the girl says, hey, do you have any oxys? And I'm like, why are you waking me up so early? She said, I wanted some oxys. Yeah. Well, she. <laughs> yeah. So I'm new into this. And I was like, this behavior is. Uh, and she said, I'm sick. I need a, I need some oxys. And I said, so had you not experienced withdrawal from that at this no, point so no, that's why so you I didn't said, understand i said like, if you were sick doing? you need yeah. to go to a doctor right <laughs> yeah that's and so yeah. like i'm just naive you to ruined addiction. Her day. <laughs> right well she says i'm sick because i've had oxys and in my head i said you dope fiend right you dope fiend <laughs> get out of here junkie and so like i i you know i was not the best guy then and so i said like you are a dope fiend she said if you stop taking them you'll get sick too and me you know mr i do everything like i'm I about just, to prove this girl wrong yeah I, so i say okay whatever i go back to bed i wake up and i'm like i'm not gonna take any oxy today you know i've i've been through a war i've been through chaos in high school i I'm strong-willed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I put my mind to everything. I can do it. Um, and about four hours in. I was just about to say about four hours later, he said, all right. Four hours in, I started to get the sweats and my heart sunk into my stomach. Yep. And I knew, and this overwhelming feeling came over me that I was no longer in control of my life. Right. There wasn't like a choice whether I was going to take Oxy or not no. or some form of opiate. Like I had to due to the physical addiction. So then that scared you and you got sober right there, right? Never right. Again. And that's my story. A uh, <laughs> couple episodes of Duck Dynasty. The we one chip wonder. Yeah. So <laughs> absolutely not. So um, what that meant was I needed to stock up. So because uh, that's the it's logical. Right. Reasonable. That's the right. logical way. Well, and so it seems logical in that moment. Because it does. Yeah. 
Yeah, for, you're going to save them for later, right? Right, right, right. right. But our, but the tolerance and all that, you can't keep up with it, an addiction. doesn't matter how much you have. Um, so needless to say, I wasn't soldiering the greatest. I got out a couple months earlier um, than I was supposed to. And uh, gratefully, I was not dishonorably discharged, got out um, uh, where I still got my benefits and everything worked out, except I had a full-fledged opiate addiction. Right. And so um, through a number of bad choices, I, I came back to Indiana and I was like, oh, this is horrible. You know, hold I, on. I have a question. Yeah. At that time, did anybody else know? Any my, like other than the people that you might have been buying them from or that chick that showed up at your house? Like, did so your family, I, like your friends, did anyone know? I had some family members that were in addiction themselves that knew, but no one that was not in addiction. Gotcha. I worked really hard to keep it a secret. Yeah. So PT in the morning, they call our names for drug screens. That means I wear a whizinator out yeah, to PT right. every morning to see if my name's called. And for those and, who don't know, what's a whizinator? So it's a strap that ha- uh, goes around your waist, has a little compartment where fake urine is stored with a hose that runs down um, by your groin so that you can... Um, Provide that for a sample to go to the bathroom. Right. Right. And so um, when they would not call my name, then I would have to make a reason to run to my room, take that off because we're about to go on a run. Uh, So I I worked hard uh, to not. And um, I mean, I should have absolutely got a dishonorable discharge because I was, Mm -hmm. um, you know, not well. But the so the so the fear of being sick outweighed the fear of being dishonorably. Yeah. So so. One of the things uh, that the way I've described it is the pain of being sober outweighed the consequences of my use. Mm. And so um, not be not using my the substance, I was not okay just sober. Yeah. That was painful Torture. to be like that. Yep. So uh, you know the medi- the the substance is my solution to that pain I'm feeling. So removing that substance without putting something else in, that's that was torture. Yep. Um, and I came to find that out a couple treatment centers later. Yep. But so you came back to Indiana. Came Sorry back to, to Indiana. No, you're good. Um, and then I was like, you know what? It's Indiana. It's that's the problem. Or you know, it was Hawaii at first, and then I came to Indiana. So I'm, I'm going to interrupt you again. No, you're this good. Is what I do. So you were in Hawaii when that started. Yeah. So my addiction started in Hawaii. Was it? What year was that around? Uh, so that was like 2010. Okay. So right around that time when oxys were everywhere, was it like that in Hawaii too? Oh, you would think there was not much there. That's there why was, I was wondering. There was 27, I have no 27 idea. days out of the month I could go pick – I was going and buying a script from someone on the island. Okay. So right. it was – I. you would think, oh, it's a little island. There's not much there. There is more um, – thankfully, I wasn't doing like meth and some other drugs. Yeah. Um, but it's flooded there. Yeah. It's insane. It's not surprising. One question I have was it, in 2010, was this a normal – pretty normal problem in the military? Do you know? Were there a lot of other people that were struggling with pill abuse or so mostly alcohol? N- not to my knowledge. It was okay. alcohol. Alcohol. And, and – at that time, people were getting kicked out for getting DUIs. Gotcha. So, and there was there was this um, idea that if you talk about having an alcohol problem, you are risking your job and your career. Right. There's no way you can bring up a, a, another addiction, yeah. Yeah. A, a more serious, illegal one, let alone you know one that you can just go to a store and buy it over the you know over the counter. Yeah. So the, the atmosphere was one where it's like you have to deal with this on your own, and I tried mm-hmm. numerous times just sure. to white knuckle it. Yep. Um, but the pain is just it was too much. And yeah. every time you tried to white knuckle it, when you told yourself tomorrow we're not getting high, did mm-hmm. you mean it? 
Uh, uh, 100%. You believe took it. Took me to you? a lie yeah. detector. I believed it wholeheartedly. Yep. When I called my family, I said, this is it. I just <laughs> need $100 so I can get food and I can have everything squared away so I'm comfortable. While you I'm, meant it. I meant it. I meant it. Three hours in, that money went to go buy oxys. Yep. You yep. know? And so that... That's a tough thing. And I'm wearing on my family. I'm wearing on my friends. Um, I'm borrowing people's cars. I'm doing all kinds of stuff. And I'm genuinely like mean the things I say, but somewhere in that process, I'm not in control anymore. Yep, yep. And that addiction says, okay, now we're in a good place. Your, your, your good heart and everything that you mean got us the resources. Now let's go have some fun. Now let's yep. go get well. Now let's go, uh, you know, enjoy life or, or get these feelings away. So I'm in Indiana now struggling with this addiction. And I'm like, you know what? It's, it's all these places that I'm at. That's the problem. I can move to Seattle, get away. I can move away from this addiction. And, um, you know, I brought myself with me to Seattle and it was within two, three weeks, maybe I had connections and, and was buying, um, Roxy's there. So I was like, okay, um, at that time, I lost everything I had acquired in the military, um, came back to Indiana, broken, um, and pretty much suicidal because I was just, life was horrible at that point. And that was the first time I had legal intervention. Um, so I, I was uh, arrested and went to jail, got out and went to the treatment for the first time. And so I uh, went to a faith-based treatment center, did spend about two years just reading the Bible, um, and spending time with uh, other people working like um, recovery. We didn't really do any 12-step programs um, or anything like that. And I did good when I stayed in that environment. But as soon as I got out of that environment and disconnected from um, those people and um, the church and things of that nature, I was right back to my full-fledged addiction. And uh, so I spent about like another five years struggling um, and just really maintaining. So Suboxone, a little meth here, some heroin, because um, at that time, oxys were no longer around. Yep. So it progressed to IV heroin use. Yep. Um, so now I have a syringe problem, uh, which brings overdoses. Because yep. now I'm injecting heroin um, and fentanyl was just starting to creep in. So every now and again, you get that batch. And next thing I know, I'll wake up and I'm in the hospital or I'm in jail. Right. And so now legal cases start to come, and I start getting charged with syringes. And so um, through a number of different probation um, programs, um, I tried Veterans Treatment Court in Montgomery County. That didn't work out well for me um, because uh, due to my fault. Um, but eventually I got to a point where I was uh, brought to Marion, Indiana, to do the VA um, SART program, which is the Substance Abuse uh, Resistance Treatment something. Uh, so basically an addiction treatment center um, based out of the Marion VA and uh, did well there. So I did great in treatment. You know, I got my family's hopes up. Things were always good in treatment. I never got in trouble. I wasn't, okay, I won't say I never got in trouble, but on the surface, like I was doing, doing well. Um, but the second I would get out of those treatment programs, I would go back to old Andrew. And uh, so it ended up being, I woke up in Grant County and I had acquired five felony syringe charges, all separate. Um, so I have three in Grant County, one in Allen County and another in Montgomery County, uh, no Boone County. Um, and so I'm looking at like the, the Northern Indiana jail tour, mm -hmm. um, going around and addressing these. And, uh, I got it worked out where everything got combined into, um, 
Veterans Treatment Court. And so at this time, I am like, each time I was getting out, I was trying to do it a little better. I was like, okay, it's these people I'm hanging out with. That's the problem. Or it's this place that I'm around. That's the problem. Or it's this girl that I'm spending time with. That's the problem. Um, There's always these external things. And I improved a little bit each time. Um, But when I woke up in that jail cell and had five felony syringe charges and was like, I'm going to be terminated from this. I'm going to go to prison. I'm going to go do 10 years because I signed max pleas for syringe charges. And I fought fought that internal struggle of like, I'm just using drugs. I'm only harming myself. This is BS. But I was like, I'll I'll go to prison and I'll figure it out as I always do. Um, My family was supportive, um, gave me money until I called my dad in jail and I was like, hey, I'm back in jail. I need a lawyer and I need some money on my books. And he said, I can't help you anymore. Mm-hmm. And that made me so mad because he could help me. He he could. Financially, he was capable of helping me. So in that moment, you were angry at him. I was so mad. Mm-hmm. I was so mad. And it was, woe is me. Yeah. Um, You're a victim. Yeah. Yeah. How can you say this to your son who you didn't? you know, raised perfectly. And right. majority, majority of this probably has something to, you know, all that stuff that I told myself. And so I was like, okay, you are out of my life, you know, good. Uh, so they came and got me one morning. And at this point, I'm ready to go to prison. And uh, they said, we're going to release you to the Grace House. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what are you guys doing? <laughs> I have tried this over and over and continue to show that I have no ability to lead my own life, to make the right decisions, to to to, to be successful in, in any of these areas. What do you and so what that what happened in that moment is my reality that I had built was challenged. So this idea that the police were after me, the judges were after me, probation was after if all these people would just leave me alone, I would be fine. These people are out to get me. They just have nothing to do. They want my money, all that, you know, all that. They just want my money for court fees and all that stuff. It was like, hold on, I've given up on myself and you guys are giving me another chance. So that really challenged like this story I'd built in my head. And so I got out that time, you know, sitting in my probation officer's uh, office And he was a very soft-spoken guy. And I said, you know what? I know what I need to do this time. Um, I I know where I messed up these other times. And I really, and he's, he looked at me and said, maybe you don't know what you need to do. Mm. And and that was the first time he'd really challenged me. And I was so so offended. I've got certificates, (laughs) you know how many treatment programs? Army, like what are you talking about? Yeah. I'm, you know how many treatment centers I've completed? Yeah, I can I can tell you everything they're going to say. Right. I, can, I can spit the book right. out right now. Right. I've done it. I've right. done it. And uh, so in the moment, you know, it made me a little hot. And I went home and I kind of like processed it. And I was like, he's right. I I don't know. I, I know some things, but I don't know everything. And I don't know how to apply it. Mm. So in that moment, I made a, a decision that I'm not going to lead my life anymore. I'm going to concede my control on what I'm doing to this guy who obvious to, to the probation and the court to obviously um, want the best for me. Cause I was ready to go to prison and they said, no, we see potential in you. And so at that moment I conceded my decisions, not perfectly, um, but 
for the majority of things, like if you say I need to do meetings, I'm going to go to meetings. If you say I need to go to Grace House, I'll go to Grace House. Um, and I'm very fortunate that they didn't sit here and say, you need to do X, Y, Z. They worked with me in making better decisions. Uh, so it was around, I had about nine months clean. And I was at the Grace House, sober living with a bunch of good guys, going to six meetings a week. And I relapsed. And I'm like, how did this happen? How I'm in sober living with a good group of guys going to six meetings a week. And I had to really, and so now I'm freaking out. Am I going to get violated? And something came over me and said, you have to take control of this. You, you can sit back and let the probation, the courts decide what your punishment's going to be, or you can really take a look at your life and see where your reservations are in your recovery. And so that's what I did. I sat down and I made an action plan. So I was still taking um, a medication, uh, gabapentin, that I was physically dependent on, but it was prescribed by a doctor and non-narcotic, all that stuff. I took. But every morning I was waking up and eating them to have a head change. Yeah. Um, so I, I was stopping that. Um, I was going to meetings, but I was not willing to get a sponsor and work the steps uh, so that I'm I'm going to do that now. Um, also, I'm going to get rid of Facebook because I have no ability to make good decisions on who I should be friends what with. What were you doing on Facebook, Andrew? A whole <laughs> lot of stuff I shouldn't have been. <laughs> We've had this conversation before. Yeah. We don't have, we don't have to have it yeah. right now. Looking for value, looking <laughs> for value, looking for um, mm. something to keep me, a distraction, stuff yeah. that I was nowhere um, at a place in my life that I needed to be inviting any of that external stuff in. So were you using people and stuff like you used your dope? Absolutely. To feel better? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and for that matter, food, yes. you know, uh, you know, cause I'm, I'm not using my drug of choice, but whatever gives me that little dopamine hit, yep. um, the, uh, the Facebook person giving you attention mm-hmm. or that, that cheesecake or that food that right. you eat. And, and, and that becomes, Oh, I've just replaced the stuff here. Yep. And so, uh, yeah, I put together the action plan. I presented it. And I was like, this is the stuff I need to work on. And um, I did all those things. Also, I did 90 and 90. Got a sponsor, worked the steps. Um, all, in, all During all this, I'm um, going to therapy and counseling through the VA and addressing some of my mental health issues um, because I was still really struggling um, from my mental health standpoint. And um worked with professionals to get on uh, appropriate medications, worked in therapy and counseling, did CBT and a number of other things that really made me understand how my, um, my, my thoughts affect my behaviors, which affect my emotions and um, challenging how I see the world and my beliefs. So um, in all that, having that, my mental health, like um, stable and getting a sponsor and working a 12 step program started to radically change my life. Mm. And so uh, I felt the first bit of freedom that I had ever felt in a peace. And that all came from like when I surrendered um, at that time, it was Andrew makes horrible decisions. Andrew's going to stop making as many decisions. And I'm going to concede that to a God of my understanding. Yeah. And so working with a sponsor, um, doing life with uh, other people with um, a similar trajectory of life. Sam being one of those people, um, he actually showed up when I was just r- running the meetings and not willing to get a sponsor. And he was one of the first people that was like talking about getting a sponsor and working the steps that really pushed me. It's like, oh, it's an okay thing to do because the idea was everyone just lives here and is sober, um, but doesn't do the work. So like him 
bringing that up, I don't know if he even knows this, him just verbalizing that made it like an okay thing to do and not corny or lame to actually like work a recovery program. I feel like someone told you that, Sam, at one point, maybe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> someone may have. <laughs> Along the way of the journey there. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. that's weird. I don't, I wonder I don't know. Uh, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> but, and that's the cool thing of like how this recovery, you know, one person pours into another that yeah. pours into another and that that's how this recovery thing like grows and we all help each other. Uh, so yeah, I, I um, found a passion for serving others and helping, um, and became an active member in AA. And um, Sam and I became really passionate about um, service work. We would go to parks and start like groups, just inviting people to go clean up parks uh, and little random things that were like not about us. Things that living a life that wasn't centered on um, Andrew pleasing Andrew or Sam pleasing Sam. Like, what can we just do for our community? What can we do for another person? Um, and getting because that provides like a, a joy that nothing else does. You know, there's, there's something there and, uh, became passionate about serving and then got my certification as a peer, started working in the recovery field and, um, giving back. And it's just been a, a journey, um, so, you know, I'm really fortunate to uh, get to work with uh, a number of people that challenge me and um, help me grow. Because at the end of the day, like I'm never fully recovered and it continues to take surrounding myself like people like you that will call me on my crap or keep, hold me accountable or just um, act in a way where I'm like, oh, that's that's where I want to get to. I want to uh, continue to grow. And so um, I have to continue doing like my basics. I have to continue going to meetings and yeah. staying in contact, staying humble. Um, and it's a challenge. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say like everything's easy and perfect, but um, it's a way easier way of life. If I zoom out of my life right now, my life is amazing. I should be dead um, or in prison. Like, there's no doubt about it. And the fact that my life looks like it does today, my sponsor told me, and this is kind of one of those corny sponsor things, but when I was doing my step nine, he said, picture your life a year from now. And I was like, okay. And I pictured like a sweet life, um, you know, picturing real big. And uh, he said, all right, what you just pictured, if you continue on this path and working this program, you will have short sold yourself. And I'm like, okay, good line. You know, that's like an AA thing. Flash forward like a year from then, and I would have short sold myself if I just had like mm-hmm. the life that I pictured. And so it's like this cool thing that continues um, to give and grow. And so like I don't know where my life is heading. And the cool thing is like I don't have to because I like work a program where I believe like there's something guiding me um, that has my best interest. Because when Andrew guides Andrew, it ends mm-hmm. up in it's all bad. Yeah, yeah. And same for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I want to add a little caveat that in working those steps and, and the part where I was making my amends, I had to make amends to my dad. Yeah. And part of that process was not me addressing any of the things that he didn't do as when I was a kid yeah. or when he told me he was done. It you was didn't for, take his inventory? I, I, what are you I, doing? I, I, I did that for 33 years. <laughs> so I figured I can give him an hour. Give him a break for right, an hour. Where I wasn't. And so it was for me owning my side of the street. I was not a good son. I could have been better. And I'm, I dr- yeah. This is my stuff. Yep. And something happened in that. And we didn't just get a relationship that we used to have because mm-hmm. we never had a really great relationship. But we had a whole new relationship beyond anything that we ever had and ever probably could have if uh, we didn't go through. Yep. And looking today, him setting that boundary of 
I can't help you. I hated him in the moment, and I love him to death for doing Probably that the, now. That's one of the best things he ever did for you. Because he wasn't helping you anyways with everything he was doing before. Just like all of our parents, anytime they, like, you know, we talk about that all the time. You're, there's a pretty fine line between helping and enabling when it comes to somebody that's in our situation. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and we know how to pull on the heartstrings of those family yep. members and we, and we wear them out. And Good manipulators. So, absolutely. Yeah. Professionals. Yeah. We take it. hostages. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. And so, like, years later, we got to talk about it. And, uh, you know, his wife said that that was the hardest decision he has ever had to make you know and and so i don't take that lightheartedly so um, you know when family family members reach out to us on bkr a lot of times they're struggling with those boundaries and that's Mm -hmm. that's an example that i use is the thing that you do that you don't want to do that you feel like you're going to be hurting them in the moment will be the thing that they when they cross Mm -hmm. over to that other side they're going to look at you and be thankful and grateful and and your relationship's going to build off of that So. Yeah, I think that's important to highlight, though, that like families yeah, who are watching this, it's hard to set those boundaries and say no and yeah. take a step back. But you have to do it mm-hmm. if your loved one is not getting it. You know, you cannot continue to enable bad decisions. Don't keep bailing them out of jail. Don't keep giving them money. Don't keep putting gas in their tank or, or money, you know, on their books or anything like that. Like, we have to feel the full weight of our consequences. Well, and all four of us can sit here and tell you, that's honestly, like that is a huge part of what helped us turn our lives around and what why helped we're us here. save our lives. Like, yes, ultimately <laughs> right now the podcast, I don't think any of us would be here if it weren't for that. No, mm-hmm. not at all. And I think one of the most important things that you guys both said, Andrew, the way that you said it was really, you said it really well, but Sam, you said it also, um, giving back to your community, using your experience to help other people like that gives you a feeling that no drug or alcohol ever did like that hole that we all had inside of us. Like that's something real that we can fill that hole with without having to put a needle in our arm Mm -hmm. or drink a bottle or whatever it is. And like, that really is the essence of what we do today. Like that's what we do with BKR. That was the whole purpose of starting BKR. So just, I know we've only got a few minutes left, but like real quick, can you guys just talk about like, your role with BKR, like, what do you guys do? Like, what's, what's the point of it? Go ahead. Yeah. So, um, as far as on the app, we respond, um, to individuals who are reaching out for help. So one of the things, um, we have a ton of lived experience. So for a long time, I said, I'm going to get clean and then I'm going to act like that never happened. Yeah, that was my story too. I wanted to put it all behind me. I didn't want to ever look at it again, put it in a box. I lived in another country for a decade and now I'm back. And that's why I have no story. I always wanted to be normal. Right, right. It turns out uh, when you work this program of recovery, that becomes like our biggest strength. Yep. And so now we get to utilize that through things like BKR. And so family members, um, individuals looking for help, Mm -hmm. when they ask questions, I can speak from a place of I have been there or I have experience or I know someone else who has been there or have experience. Um, And so we can provide a support. Um, we can help into family members who are, have loved ones that they're worried about, even if they're not ready for help. We can help the family members through um, walking out the process, what boundaries look like, what finding treatment options look like, um, what supporting a person in a way that's not going to lead to their death looks like. So uh, I say I have the best job in the world because I get to use a decade of me just being a hot mess to help other people um, hopefully not spend as much time being hot mess and lost in confused you know yeah it's i mean using your pain for your platform um 
that that's what this is all about. Um, and, and really making those connections. Um, you know, at the end of the day, um, th- that's how I believe my job boils down to, whether that's making connections with that individual at that hotel that's still struggling, making that connection with the family member um, who, who's worried about that individual at the hotel that's struggling, or or making that connection with a family member who's already lost that person and, and doesn't know who to talk to um, so it can connect them to somebody else who's been there mm-hmm. um, and, and, and giving them hope and a little bit of peace, knowing that, yeah, it's tough, but it's going to be all right at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, they always say the opposite of addiction is human connection. And I think that's uh, something you guys kept coming back to in your story. Is yeah. Now. When you were in treatment, you did well. When you were in sober living home, sober living homes, for the most part, other than Andrew relapsing while he was there, <laughs> you guys did you. really well because you Who had that, that connection. <laughs> but, but while you're there, you had that connection. Right. right. Yeah. Right. There were still some other pieces that were missing, and that's why that happened. And I know right. you've, you know, we've all had that same experience, yeah. too. But for the most part, we do way better when we're in situations like that. But then you leave and you go back home and now you're just with Sam and now you're just with Andrew. Mm-hmm. You don't really have a chance. But then when you connect with others and you have a community mindset, I think that's huge. Like thinking about how can we have a positive impact? Like I always like talk about how we are part of the problem. Now we get the privilege of being part of the solution. And I think a big thing for everybody is finding their purpose. And it sounds like you guys found your purpose Mm -hmm. in helping other people and expecting nothing in return, just doing it because you love people and you just want to help. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and there, one last thing, if, if you guys could say something to somebody, because here's one thing we run into a lot with a lot of people. I know you guys do. I know Tommy and I do. People that are in the throes of addiction, but that play the victim card of the justice system has it out for me. The justice system sucks. It doesn't help me at all. It's all against me. My family's against me. They won't help me. Anymore. Well, specifically the justice off, system, in my opinion, because that's something we hear about repeatedly. Like, do you guys feel like you guys would be sitting here if it wasn't, if the justice system just said, Hey, hands off, do whatever you want to do. Do you think you'd be sitting here today? I'd be dead. Absolutely. Justice system saved my life. I got legal intervention, which I absolutely needed mm-hmm. because I was, literally killing myself time and time again. And so without that legal intervention, setting me down in jail because I was not capable of being safe with myself, um, I needed that. And that's not the the first option, but that needs to be a last resort. And so, and those, those individuals believe that, that they are out to get them Mm -hmm. because they feel attacked and they don't see a way out. Um, but that's okay. They're just not there yet. Well, and one thing in my experience I've always seen is that people in the justice system, like you guys said, they really want you to do well. No judge wants to sit there and throw someone in prison. People say, oh, they just want to throw me in prison. No, they don't. Mm -hmm. The judges that I know light up when somebody comes in who came through their court and is doing well. That fills up their soul. A lot of Mm -hmm. times they're pessimistic and they may be a little harsh. That's because they see people come in and what do do we do in active addiction? We lie, we cheat, we steal. Mm -hmm. And then we try to make people feel crazy for (laughs) believing the truth, right? So they've they've had a bunch of people stand there BS and all that stuff. Were you going to say something, Sam? Um, I was just going to say, you know, I I, I worked with Judge Newton when Mm -hmm. I was in Huntington, Mm -hmm. you know, and and my first case, she gave me a chance. Um, I violated, she gave me another chance, violated again. She gave me another chance. Um, and then she said, you know what, you're done. I'm going to throw away the key. You're going away for however long I had. Um, I think it was nine, eight, nine months. Um, but today I get to work with her Mm. and, you know, I got to tell her that story, right? She absolutely loves it. Um, and, and, Mm. and, you know, to go along with Nate's point, they don't want to, they're not trying to harm us. They're not mm-hmm. trying to throw away the lock and key, so to speak. Um, they just generally, most of the time, want to see us do better. Um, and, and I think at the end of the day, that's what everybody wants. 
um, is just just to see somebody do better. You know, mm -hmm. us as a society, we're tired of watching people die. Yes. And and at the end of the day, that's what's going to happen if we continue our use. Um, you know, all of us on this couch together were in a place where we were lying on a bathroom floor, dead, blue. Um, you know, but by the grace of God, you know, we were saved. Um, and and we get to help other people find their way now. Um, you know, the justice system. All it is is accountability until you can get your ducks in a row and resources mm -hmm. to find you to find the rest of the way out. Right. Um, and if you can look at it like that, uh, you, you'll be in a good spot. You know, just just shift that perspective a little bit. Yeah. I always like to highlight as well. Real quick. One last thing. I know I keep saying that. Um, we got four last things. I know. Well, we'll have one last they're all thing. good things. Well, one more good thing. I'll say that. <laughs> um, you know, we talk a lot about the number of people that die from overdoses and you could take that number and multiply it by 10 for how many people it really impacts on a personal level. Yeah. I think you could take a person who is in recovery, who's overcome those things and did what you guys are talking about, taking that dark, taking that experience in the darkness and, and that light that comes inside of you and then and going back in the darkness and leading people to the light, you can multiply that by 50 or 100. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, like the impact is so much greater of somebody that gets in recovery and stays in recovery and starts thinking about mm -hmm. helping people other than themselves. Yeah. So, I mean, I just love that you guys have that in your story. It's just yeah. so, so ripple important. effect that you'll never really see with right. your own eyes, but it's definitely happening. And I mean, here's an example of it right, right here. Yeah. You never knew one, that what you were yeah. doing was going to impact him and come to me. Yeah. And so that's us walking it out and living it out. It's not always the things we say. It's like us walking and living out our recovery loudly yeah. Um, yeah. in front of people. And they're like, oh, that's impactful. Well, and it's funny because, you know, when I worked with Sam, I didn't know that he was going to, I didn't know you were going to make it. I don't know. I, we, we don't, we don't pick winners and losers, right? Yeah. I actually, it's funny because I had somebody message me last night who works in Parkview, who's actually another alumni of ours, but they're in recovery. Somebody I also thought would never make it. And they said they're having a hard time because they have so many people come to the ER who are addicted to drugs and alcohol and in such bad shape. And they feel like they're not getting through them. They're getting burnt out. But I, what I always like to tell people is just keep planting seeds because you never know when, when that's going to grow. Yeah. keep planting seeds, keep watering. You never know when it's going to grow. And I think all four of us here could probably think of 10 people that poured into us when we didn't deserve it. And here yeah. we are today. And there's things that come to me even now that I didn't even realize I heard when they were speaking to me. And I'm like, that's what he was talking about. Yep. Yep. You know? Absolutely. So if you're watching and you're burnt out and you feel like you don't know what you're doing and nobody's listening to you, keep planting seeds. Cause you might be talking to an Andrew or a Sam or a Tommy and you just never know. And if you're watching and you, maybe you're struggling thinking about taking that step towards recovery, I really liked what you said about how Sam helped you realize that going to meetings and getting a sponsor and working the steps and giving back to your community and doing all this stuff, like it wasn't weird to no, do any right? of that. Like it was actually cool and yeah. you started to enjoy it. So if you don't think that recovery is cool, all right. I don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> well, we'll end with it. We'll end with a Mike Muller and quote my father. Let's and he it. said, Nate, when before the age of 25, everybody just says, it's okay, Nate's just figuring out life. But after 25, you're just an asshole. <laughs> so get it together. Yes. I was I the agree. asshole. Don't wait till you're 25, though. If you're yeah. 23, it's okay. You can get it together now. You yeah. might still be an asshole. So. But never too late to stop being an asshole. That's, that's the point. <laughs> and I certainly was, so I can say that. All right. Anything else you guys want to add before we end it? I don't think so. Nope. All right. Come well, thank you guys for coming on today. We appreciate your time. Appreciate you guys. Awesome. Thanks for having Thanks, us. Thanks, guys. All right. We'll see you next time.